0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we're walking uh, through 1 John together, and we've entitled this series, Confidence. Uh, Because John's primary goal in writing this letter is to build a genuine Christian's confidence in their Christianity. We've said that it's normal for a genuine follower of Jesus to struggle with doubts. It's normal for a genuine Christian to wonder if they're really a Christian. Again, this happens for lots of different reasons. The, The main reasons are that we continue to sin and that confuses us. And we see other people from our perspective experiencing something in the gospel that we're not experiencing. And so we doubt. And John's primary goal, he states it very specifically throughout the letter, his primary goal is to serve Christians in the realm of confidence. And so once you understand that this one letter is written with this primary goal, you can begin to look through the letter and see diagnostics, see indicators, uh, see tests. By which a person can discern whether or not they're truly a person of faith, or if they even in a self-deceived way are faking it. And so based on John's primary goal, you can deduce from 1 John the signs of genuine faith. These signs building the confidence of the believer but I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say and spend about 10 minutes talking about. The message of 1 John is not everyone who hears this letter should feel confident. The message is everyone who sees the indicators of faith should feel confident. So think, taking a pregnancy test does not mean you're pregnant. Similarly, listening to 1 John shouldn't automatically give you confidence. It should only give you confidence if the indicators of faith are in your life. Uh, A better illustration, but not much better, is the strep throat test that I had to endure thousands of times growing up. I have no idea if this is common practice anymore. I didn't take the time to find out. But whenever my, my throat hurt growing up, Uh, My mom would get me out of school. She would take me to the doctor. She would check me in. I would sit there for a couple of hours among really sick people. And eventually I would go into uh, the room and the nurse or the doctor would stick that long cotton swab way down my throat, causing me to vomit nearly every time, causing another sickness. They would put a a sample in the dish and they would some point within the next four, four to seven weeks call my mom and tell her if I did or did not have strep throat. And the point is this. Sore throats and strep throats look awfully similar. And if you have a strep throat, you have to do something proactive about it. And so you have to run a test. And so the point is this again, the metaphor breaks down a hundred different ways, but some people in the church have a sore throat, and some people have strep throat. I'll let you discern which is what and how it plays out. And so John's letter is not for everyone who goes to church to hear that they have confidence or that they should have confidence. His letter is for everyone who goes to church to hear what indicators can tell them if it's reasonable or not for them to assume that they're part of God's family. And so what I wanna do is I wanna admit up front that I am trying to sober you and me this morning. Here's why. From one perspective, you could say that it is wise and reasonable and even biblical to be suspicious of your own salvation. Why might it be wise to be suspicious of your own salvation? The Bible is really clear. There are a lot of people in the church who think they're saved, and they're not. There are many in and around the gospel who know the gospel, but don't actually, we'll say, believe the gospel. There there are many in and around Jesus who know facts about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Uh, To be honest with you, my hope in starting out this series was to build the confidence of the genuine believer, and now includes the fact that I want to shake the confidence of any who has confidence, and it's unreasonable, Because on the one hand, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, we just read it in CBR, not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And what that tells us is that it's possible to confess the name of Jesus with your mouth, but not actually believe the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, in your heart. And what's really sobering to me is in Matthew chapter seven, the many who simply confess the name of Jesus and presumably don't believe in their hearts, the many are shocked in the final judgment when they discover that they didn't actually know Jesus and they aren't actually part of the kingdom of heaven. This means that those individuals thought their visible confession of the name revealed an, in, uh, an intimate and invisible reality in the heart that wasn't there. In Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching about the final judgment and he has these metaphorical animals in a metaphorical flock. And he says, when, when the son of man comes back, he's gonna separate them out, the sheep and the goats, some into his presence for eternal life and some away from his presence. Eternal death. And what that tells us is that, that part of the visible flock are those who are not part of the invisible flock. The goats are absolutely shocked that they will not spend forever with Jesus. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. I've already alluded to it. He illustrates four types of responses that people can have to the gospel. Only one of the four types of people who hear the gospel actually receive the gospel and bear fruit. I'm not saying one out of every four church people. I don't know how many are in each type. I'm just saying only one of the four types actually receive and bear fruit. And here's what's really sobering. Two of the three types of hearers didn't, uh, two of the three types of hearers who didn't ultimately receive the gospel went through a season where they appeared to have received it. The Bible is clear. Not everyone in the visible, physical, temporal church who thinks they're part of the invisible, spiritual, eternal church is actually and genuinely part of the family and the kingdom of God. And so, in a sense, again, it's actually wise and reasonable, and you might say even biblical, to be just a little suspicious. Why else would Jesus keep telling us about these people who think they're in and they're not? And in that vein, John is giving us an incredible gift. He is giving a gift to the visible church. He is saying, the gift is not that if you hear it, you should have confidence, but I'm giving you the diagnostics to help you understand if your confidence is reasonable. What an incredible gift to have our confidence shaken now, if it needs to be, instead of eternally shaken at the final judgment. And so to review, we've come across two indicators so far in 1 John. We've come, we've come across two tests that we can run on ourselves to see whether or not we have strep throat or sore throat, you decide how the metaphor plays out. The the first indicator of faith in 1 John is increasing repentance. Remember this? We were studying 1 John 1, 5 through 10, and we said that genuine believers increasingly walk in the light. That is to say they confess their sinfulness, past, present, and future, more and more. That should be a huge relief, that it's not like 50% obedience or giving a certain amount of money or... It's just acknowledging the massive grace that is needed in my life on a regular basis. Secondly, though, ironically and paradoxically, the the second indicator of genuine faith is obeying God's commands more and more. And so at first, repentance and obedience, they seem contradictory. They they seem to to be at odds with one another, but they're not. We didn't say that the genuine Christian uh, sins more and more. We said they confess their sin more and more. So the maturing Christian is both confessing more and more the sin that has always been there and obeying more and more at the same time. And in fact, as we increasingly confess our need for Jesus, we increasingly receive Jesus by grace and we increasingly respond by living like Jesus. And so it's not actually uh, uh, contradictory. It's, it's actually quite obvious if you stop and think about it. If we'll increasingly live in the light, chapter one, we'll increasingly uh, live like Jesus. If we walk in the light, we'll increasingly walk like Jesus. And so yes, the confession of more sin leads to more obedience. So the, the text this morning provides us with our third indicator of genuine Christianity. The genuine Christian, here it is, third indicator loves the world less and less over time. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And here's the indicator. Here's where we get the idea of a test. Chapter, uh, verse 15, second half of the verse. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So a way to grow in confidence is to see a decreasing love for the world in our lives. But a way to lose confidence is to look at our lives and not see decreasing affections for the things of the world. Now again, this teaching should be convicting and sobering and repentance-inducing being the first indicator of genuine faith. And it should be these things because after all, think back about the parable of the sower. The third type of soil in the parable of the sower The one that appeared to be receiving the gospel uh, for the longest amount of time before it became evident that the gospel had not taken root and borne fruit. What was happening in that person's life? What did the thorns represent that choke out the word? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. A sermon on genuine faith and love for the world should be sobering. There's a guy in 2 Timothy 4, his name's Demas. He deserts Paul, he abandons the mission, he walks away from the gospel. Why? Why does Demas walk away? Why does the guy who had enough apparent faith to join Paul's missionary team walk away showing that he didn't have faith? Why does he walk away? Paul just says it quickly. He was in love with this present world. in order to understand this third indicator better, in order uh, to to wrap our hearts and minds around uh, what John is meaning in this passage. It feels very important to me. I wanna ask two questions. What does it mean to love the world? That feels crucial. What does it mean to love the world? And more importantly, how can I love the world less? (laughs) That feels important to me too, okay? Okay. So first, what does it mean to love the world? If the person who loves the world doesn't have the love of the Father in them, what does it mean? Okay, I wanna tell you what it doesn't mean. I wanna tell you what John's not saying. And then I wanna tell you what John's at least saying. Okay, so first, John is not saying that we should hate the world. Okay, the passage doesn't include the word hate anywhere. John is not saying that we should hate the world. Further, John is not saying that we should never love the world. John is not saying that in every sense of the word world and love, we should never love the world. If you just stop and think for a second, you'll realize, okay, John is using the word love and he's using the word world in particular ways. And in those particular ways, he does not want me to love the world. If you just stop and think for a second, uh, you have to say to yourself, okay, what's the most famous verse in all of the Bible? Arguably, John 3.16. What does John 3.16 state? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so you can't use this verse uh, to to teach that Christians should hate the creation that God has made. And you can't use this verse to teach that Christians should hate the people living in this world or the other creatures in God's beautiful creation. John, John is not saying that. But if he's not saying that, what is he at least saying? He's at least saying this, and by the way, I won't tell you the full extent of what he's saying until chapter five, so don't expect me to say more than what he's at least saying. But he's at least saying this, to love the world in a way that is wrong is to have an excessive desire or an idolatrous desire for the things in the world. So look back at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And then John, in verse 16, he elaborates upon all that is, quote, in the world. He says that this is in the world, and this is not from the Father, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. What I want to do is I want to unpack these three phrases to better understand what it means to love the things in the world, because that will, in part, teach us what it means to love the world. Okay, so the first reality that is in the world, but is not of the Father, is, quote, the desires of the flesh. The Greek word here for flesh can be used in the Bible for your physical body, or it can also be used in the Bible for your sinful nature, a nature that's called the old self once you become a believer. The sinful nature and the old self at the core try to find life apart from God. And so theologians can debate all day long as to which one John meant. Did he mean the body or did he mean the sinful nature? It doesn't really matter. The most important word in this phrase is the word desires. This Greek word for desires is a compound word in the Greek. It's epithumia. Thumia in the Greek means desire. Epi is a prefix it means over, hyper, or uber. Epithumia appears 38 times in the New Testament. 35 of them are in a negative context. Epithumia is a hyper desire, an over desire, an excessive desire, an idolatrous desire. And so in this verse, John is talking about an inordinate desire. He's talking about our flesh. He's talking about our bodies because of sin, having too great of a desire for a creative thing. Said differently, listen to this, to love the world is to love a good thing in the world more than it deserves. It is to love a good thing in the world as if it's the ultimate thing of the world. You see, one of the three times where this Greek word is used in an exemplary way is Philippians chapter 1. And in that place, Paul says this. He says, My deepest desire, my epithumia, is to be with Jesus face to face. And what that tells us is that a human's deepest desire is meant for and can only be satisfied by communion with God, relationship with God, worshiping God. What that tells us is that we are loving this world and we love anything in this world with the affection and the passion that is only right and only appropriate and only fitting for God. Here's the deal. The human heart, alienated from God by sin and pride, continues on with a God-sized affection, continues on with a capacity to worship in a God-sized way. And the human heart, alienated from God, by sin will fixate upon, obsess over, orient their lives around, give their creator-sized affection to, a variety of creative things. All the other popular translations give this word, render this word as lust. I like that. The problem is not that we desire these things, these are good things. But we have a hyper desire for these things. And you see the flesh can lust for money, property, vehicles, sex, relationships, children, careers, comforts, successes, accolades, perfections, etc. etc. Literally in verse 15 he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. And what that teaches me is that we can fixate upon anything in the world. And act like it's God So an idolatrous love And not some lesser love Is what John means in our passage When he says do not love the world And so we know that John is talking about An idolatrous love, an excessive love uh, um, he, We know he's talking about Our deepest love Because it's juxtaposed With the love of the Father And he uses at least three times In this passage This idea of a hyper desire for something so if you look, the second reality that is put in the world, verse 16, is the desires of the eyes. Again, desire is epithemia. And all John is doing here is he is saying that the ordinary bridge between the lusts of our flesh and the external realities of the idolized, the ordinary bridge is our eyes. It doesn't mean that a person who's physically blind doesn't lust. It just means ordinarily our eyes are the bridge that connects the lust of the flesh and a good thing that we idolize. We know this from experience. We know this from experience. We see something that we don't yet have a dollar amount in a retirement account, a car, the next year's car, a spouse, a hobby, a career, a food, a wine. We see that thing and we begin to desire that thing more than it deserves. We begin to believe that we will finally be satisfied if we can have that thing. And we give that thing more of the affection in our heart than it deserves, that is reasonable, and that is right. And we will live our lives for however long we're alive, constantly dissatisfied with the last thing we set our affections on. Moving from that last thing that didn't satisfy us, seeing something new, something outside of what we currently have, and we will again <coughs> crave that thing, long for that thing, organize our lives around that thing, seek after that thing, worship it. And again, ordinarily, the physical eye is the bridge by which our internal lusts connect to external things. This is why you're going to read in Matthew 18, I believe, this week in Community Bible, and you're going to read Jesus saying the second time in Matthew, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it both ways. it is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have both eyes in hell. Okay, the third reality that is in the world, verse 16, is, quote, pride of life. I just have to be really honest and say I think that's a poor translation. The ESV, if you have it, says in the footnote, uh, pride in possessions. That's a good alternate translation. Both of the commentators would tell us to at least go with that, and if not go with boasting in possessions. These two Greek words ordinarily in the New Testament are translated as boasting and possessions. And so this reality that is in the world is this boasting and possessions. And so our love for the world and the things in the world is revealed by our boasting in and our taking pride in these things is uh, thinking that we're better than other people because of what we possess. Okay, this is why manufacturers can put a certain logo on the same shirt and charge three times for it. This is why country clubs stay in existence. Right? It's this idea that if I contain that and get there, I'm gonna be better than everybody else. It could be a car, the next year's car, it could be a degree, it could be a witty sense of humor, it could be a position, it could be a relationship, it could be getting out of a relationship, it could be a house, it could be a vacation, it could be whatever. And so to summarize, when when John says don't love the world, he at least means this. Do not see something that you don't yet have. Obsess over it, crave it, pursue it with a divine passion. Get it, gain it, accomplish it, hoard it, and feel better than all the other people who don't have it. That's the love of the world, at least. And I would say that feeling bad and being depressed because we don't have what other people have is still love for the world. It's just a less successful version of it. <laughs> to feel less valuable than other people because of what they have, is to still subscribe to the world system of values that, that my value is based on what I have And what I can see. Is still to believe that the abundant life Is found in accomplishments And in things So here's the question If that's what the love of the world is How can we love the world less? Second question How can we love the world less? Okay so the indicator of genuine faith that can grow our confidence in the fact that we are being saved by God is a decreasing love for the things of the world. A decreasing capacity in our hearts for idolatry. So how can that happen? How do we love the world less? And I want to just hit the pause button and I want to make sure you hear me saying that that the indicator of genuine faith is not a complete lack of love for the world. It's a love for the world that's decreasing. Because in chapter 1, John made it really clear to us. We're all sinners we will all be sinners until the day we die. John says that in every present tense moment, every one of us has to confess that we're still sinning, still falling short, still idolizing things that we should not idolize. And if you'll just stop and think for a second, you'll realize that every future moment of my life will eventually become a present moment in my life in which I have to say in that present moment that I'm still a sinner. Therefore, it is not logical, it is not biblical, it is not wise for me to think that I will ever not be sinning in this life so the indicator is not no love for the world, it's a decreasing love for the world. How does that happen? There's at least two ways. First, we have to realize that what we're craving is dying. And second, we have to, to set our deepest affections on an object worthy of our worship. Okay, so first, we, we, we will love the world less when we realize that what we're craving is dying. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, meaning the things that we desire. The verb passing away is most often used in the Bible, Jesus walking by someone. The world is passing away. The world is passing by. John is saying that in the grand scheme of things, the world and the things in the world, these things that we long for in worship, He's like they're temporary. They're transient. They're on an evening stroll around the block. It's going to be helpful to us to love the world less if we can stop and think for a second about all the worldly things in our stories that we thought would make us happy. If we'll just stop and think for a second about the things we obsessed obsessed over and craved deeply craved. If we'll stop and think about the things we sacrificed inordinate amount of resources for. If we'll just stop and think, where are those things now? It'll help us to love the world less. Most of those things that we've craved for in the past are gone. They passed away.
1: They were, they were a creative thing going
0: for a walk around the block. And we, we jumped on their back trying to get to eternity. I remember wanting, desperately wanting a certain kind, kind of rain jacket. The coolest kid in my school had this rain jacket. It was waterproof, it was a hoodie, it had a huge pouch in the front like a kangaroo. <clears throat> the coolest part about the jacket was you could turn the jacket inside out and put the entire jacket inside of the pouch and carry it around with you. I ached for that jacket for months. I finally got one of those jackets, my mom made me one. <laughs> but when I. I was so proud. When I finally got the jacket, it was summer. It was summer in South Carolina. But I still wore that jacket every day. And I wore that jacket and I walked around wearing that jacket, knowing that I was better than everyone else who didn't have that jacket. I would carry things in the front of that jacket that I would never need. But I could, so I did. And I left that jacket at the Wild's Camping Conference there one summer and cried the entire way home. I was devastated. But look, I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm here, I'm doing okay. I remember desperately craving a certain bag to carry my soccer gear to go school. It was a club. I didn't realize that when I saw the picture in the catalog, but it was beautiful. So and so I saved, and I saved, and I saved, and I saved, and I finally bought that bag. And every player that didn't have that bag was stung. And I was better than that player. And one day I took the bag, and I threw it like this on my bed by the strap, and the strap broke in such a way that the entire bag was rendered useless. And I cried. And I lamented the death of that bag. And now I look back on that bag, and John says to me, the world and the objects of the world are we lost for I think I've told you this story. I've probably not told you the story as much detail as I will admit now. But I ran away from home in high school. I was gone for a few days. My dad did not buy me a 280Z. A Datsun 280Z. Not a Nissan 350 whatever is available now, but the Datsun 280Z. So I got in the Jeep my dad bought me. And ran away because he wouldn't buy me the Datsun 280Z that I obsessed for since I was like 13 years old. I was just convinced that car is finally going to give me the eternal and abundant life that I crave. I had to look up online today what a Datsun 280Z looked like. Just one minute. <laughs> because I don't think I've seen one on the road in a very long time. Because the world and the objects of desire in the world are past me. <laughs> and so it's easy to talk about the past, and I actually want to talk about because I think that's going to help us have perspective on the present. So what about now? What about now? I'm tempted to think, and I often catch myself thinking, a certain house or a certain second house will make me happy. A certain number of dollars in my retirement account will make me happy. A certain level of success in me or my children now that I'm old, that's going to make me happy. The hyper desire be fulfilled, and I'll finally be able to prove I'm better than all of you. What will help me love the world less? <laughs> to start sitting down and realizing that this world and the things in this world are passing away. I need to realize right now that my house is just an adult version, a more elaborate and a more expensive version of that hoodie. It's just a bigger hoodie with more crap inside that I will never use. <laughs> and I need to realize that my retirement account is just another and more elaborate and more expensive bag. It's just another bag. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in So I really would encourage you, sit down today, make it lunch in your community, and seriously, ask God, show me my everything is of the past. Show me my hyper-desires, my lusts, my idols. Cause me to blush, cause me to laugh. Cause me to consider the lust of the flesh that I obtained and never satisfied. Cause me to consider the lust of the flesh that I did not obtain and I'm still alive. Help me to consider my past so that in the present I might have the capacity to see the passing away nature of these things. And then if you have good enough community, start to ask them, there, what do I idolize now? Because the person that you think is crazy cheering in the soccer game is just you. The person that you think is a workaholic is you. The person that you think is an addict you and see pride is this thing that deceives and so we need each other to say you know what I think it's possible you've given a little too much lust to this good thing it is not an ultimate so how do we love the world less we realize that what we're craving is dying and we set our deepest affections on a worthy object of worship okay look at the second half of verse 15 again If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John is using present tense verbs. He's not saying that if you love the world at all at any point in your life, you have never loved the Father. You can't can't possibly ever love the Father at all in any way. He is saying that in the present moment, when your epithemia, your deepest desire, when it is on a created thing, he's saying you in that moment cannot love God the Father with your deepest affection. And so, therefore, and also, when we're loving the eternal God to the extent he deserves, we can't possibly set too much affection on a created thing. You understand? So Thomas uh, Chalmers is this 19th century pastor, this 19th century theologian of sorts, who who famously wrote about the expulsive power of a new affection. Chalmers was was meditating on this verse in 1 John, 1st 15, chapter 2, 15, and some other verses, and he wrote what has become a very popular read. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he argued that it's a lot more effective to love something new, something worthy of your love, than to try and stop loving something unworthy of your love. He brilliantly argues that feeding a new affection will expel a previous affection more effectively and faster than trying to starve the previous affection. So we can start to deal with our idolatry by considering the fact that it's passing away, but more powerful, more effective, is proactively setting our deepest affections on an object, a reality, the one, word. The best way to expel false worship of created things is to engage in true worship of the Creator who made you, took on flesh, lived perfectly, and died to save you. If you think about that, actually, just in the pause, like we don't need to leave this in the recording. my mom will blush. But like Chalmers' idea of this expulsive affection is actually, uh, it shows up frequently in the lyrics of popular songs. Like, if I ask you right now, Think about some love songs and, that are popular that talk about an expulsive affection I guess is you could pick some. Like Andy Grammer's. what's that song good. I don't remember the lyrics of the song. I'm not advising you to buy it and put it on your kid's iPod. But the song basically is this. It's, it's someone being offered more alcohol and an illicit relationship remembering what they had at home and not taking that uh, to the bank. Does that make sense? It's the memory of what is genuine and true and the love of that reality that, that expels this illicit affection. Another one would be uh, cheerleader. <laughs> Incredible theology. Again, don't put on back <laughs> But what's the premise? The character seeing the song is being asked if they want to have an adulterous relationship, and they say, that's okay, I found myself a cheerleader. Which has other problems, other issues, I want to get into <laughs> But the point is, bringing into the heart that affection expels the, the affection that everyone wants, doing someone's life. In any moment that anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them.
1: Therefore, the love of the Father in any moment makes
0: the love of the world impossible. And so the last thought is the love of the world decreases as our love of the Father increases. How does our love of the Father increase? 1 John 4, three verses. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. And God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son through the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. We love God because He first loved us. The love of the world is tertiary. The love of the Father is secondary. The love the Father has for you is primary. To stop loving the world, love the Father. Love the Father. Look again at how the Father has loved you in Jesus. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching from your word that drives us back to needing your grace, to needing Jesus, to needing a Savior outside of ourselves. Please give us the grace and the gift of repentance and faith. Please allow us to see the stupidity of our idols allow us to see how they can't save us, that they're the, they're the creation of our own hands. They will never make us happy. Help us to see right now what we're idolizing. And we might turn from it. Receive grace and mercy, forgiveness and life in Jesus. And move forward in this day loving the world a little bit less and loving you a little bit more. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. You are the spirit of sonship. You are in our hearts. Crying out, Abba, Father. Connect our hearts to the reality that we already have everything we need, everything we could ever really want in Jesus. Connect our hearts to what we already have in the love of the Father for us, that we might love the Father more, that we might love the world less. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.